Mark chapter 6. If you would turn to Mark chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 45 this morning. We're going to complete chapter 6 already. I don't know if it's felt long to you, but it's felt very short to me. But we're studying verse by verse through this amazing gospel account, and we're going to be um, completing 6 today. It's important as you guys are finding that, and I encourage you to grab a Bible and to find uh, Mark chapter 6 and, and read along with us this morning. It's important to remember, and you'll see this if you look at the text, that just prior to what we're going to see beginning in verse 45, from last week, Jesus fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. I haven't done that recently. That's a pretty amazing miracle. And he, he fed at least 5,000 Many would agree that there was probably some families present, and some have estimated over 15,000 were fed with 12 baskets left over. We don't know for sure, but we know that at least 5,000 men ate and were fed and satisfied. I think that when we look at the miracles of Jesus, especially if we're used to seeing biblical stories or reading biblical stories, we can kind of miss out on the amazement, on the awe of what God does, of what Jesus did. And I think it's important for us to remember these things because we, a lot of times, will become numb to who God is and to what he's doing. We can become numb to it. We can become desensitized to it. And I want us just to think about what it would be like to see Jesus break loaf after loaf after loaf and continue to feed all of these people. And it was Jesus who was dividing the fish. And it was Jesus who was breaking the loaves. And the disciples were left with a basket full each at the end of it. Something amazing happened. And what's interesting is if you've ever been present when the Lord did something really powerful, maybe you recall a time in your past where the Lord worked amazingly and you were blown away and it was so evident that he was the one that was doing it, that no person could take credit for it. That was the type of situation that the feeding of the 5,000 presented to the crowd and to the disciples that Jesus had just done something that was not physically possible. This required the hand of God. Seeing God work powerfully can oftentimes give us what we call a spiritual high. You'll have that mountaintop experience. You've probably heard references to that before and experienced them. We talk about it at summer camp a lot. Kids come and they have these mountaintop experiences, right? And they, they commit their lives to the Lord and they're like, man, I'm just going to chuck my cell phone into a lake. Cool. Talk to your parents first. They probably paid for it. And also, it's interesting what happens in the following weeks after summer camp. What happens? A lot of times, as I've counseled teens over the years, you find that the, some of the greatest struggles of their lives come right after those weeks at summer camp. That time where you had that spiritual high gets really difficult. But when we're in that place of the mountaintop of the spiritual high, those experiences are great. However, there is a danger to them. There's a danger to seeing God work so powerfully, getting worked up, and responding wrongly. Our expectations can begin to settle around moments like spiritual highs or mountaintop experiences. If the Lord pours out powerfully amongst his people, we begin to think that the only time we're doing significant ministry is if we see God doing amazing, miraculous things. We start to base the ministry we do off it. The only time we really feel good about the work that we're doing for the Lord is if we're seeing some results. Before you know it, we lose all the value that we should have for the grind, for the plowing, for the planting, for the watering, for so many of those things that have to come first before we see harvest. 
before we see spiritual growth. We can't lose that appreciation. Worse yet, another danger is that we can get tempted to manipulate the moment. To try and manipulate an energetic or an emotional response from people because that makes us feel like significant ministry is being done. Attempting to make something significant happen spiritually is a disastrous course. Wearsby said it really well. He said, it's good to be on the mountaintop if you don't get careless and step off a cliff. (laughs) And I like, it's so true. It's great to be on the mountaintop, but there is a danger to being on the mountaintop as well. I'll never forget uh, being on an ascent trip with a, a group of young guys. And climbing up the mountain, the mountain is before you the whole way, right? And you don't really think about the ridges you're on because you're looking up at this mountain in front of you that's about 11,000 feet and you're climbing and you're climbing and you're climbing you're exhausted. And you don't really realize you're on the top until you're on the top and then you look down and you have to walk back down the mountain and that ridge you were on is very steep and you're looking down into the cavernous depths. And you become very aware, rightfully, that you're on a knife edge ridge. And I've had kids before who instinctively would get down on all fours and and try to like crawl down this trail that we walked up. And I very encouragingly, very gently, very nurturingly tell them to get up or they'll die. (laughs) Now, Think about this, you guys. So off decent point where of it. that mountaintop, we were just as high as we were ascending. Ascending, we were it when we were going up. We need to be aware of it. Did you know that 80% of all accidents on the mountain happen on descent? Going down to where we were. Lots of little things I could pick at there, but I'm going to lay off. And think about it this way from the text. Our text this morning begins with Jesus immediately, as Mark will say, sending his disciples away. From the moment of the feeding of the 5,000, as immediately, you'll see it in verse 45, he gets the disciples into a boat and he gets them crossing the Sea of Galilee. Why? Why does he respond that way immediately? I'll tell you why. It's from John's gospel. In John chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, right after the feeding of the 5,000, we read this as John records what happens. When the people saw the sign he had done, feeding 5,000, they said, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And Mark begins his story at that moment by dismissing the disciples and then going into the mountain. There's about to be this little forcible uprising with Jesus as their new leader, as their military, political leader. And Jesus immediately gets the disciples out of there. To prevent the people from making a mountaintop decision, Jesus takes action against it by sending the disciples away. We'll come back to that thought towards the end because I think we see why at the end of our text. I think towards the end of our text, we see why he got the disciples out of there because there's like, okay, so Jesus needed to dismiss this crowd. He did not want this to happen. But why send the disciples away quickly? We'll see towards the end. A little mystery for you. Okay, you ready? We're going to do the first three verses, and we'll kind of break this down as we go, but let's get into the text. Mark records this. Immediately, verse 45, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. So the 
scene is set, and we need to think about this. Thick and fast, the problems are descending on Jesus now. Very quickly, the problems are starting to accumulate. There's hostility from the Orthodox. There's a frightened, suspicious ruler named Herod who's got his eye on him. We read about that in the prior chapter. There are political hotheads who want to make him a nationalistic messiah. Jesus has problems cropping up around him now. The crowds are falling wherever he goes. It's difficult to get away. It's difficult. Remember, the people, they chased him around the lake. Remember that from last week, right? Even to get rest, even to get his disciples away, the people outrun him around the shoreline and get to him where he is. Getting them away, getting his disciples rest is becoming difficult. There's a lot of problems that are descending on Jesus. What does he do? He gets to the mountain and prays. He seeks the Father. Excuse me. That didn't mean to come out that way. I'm not emotional at all. (laughs) It's pollen season. You guys, it may seem curious that Jesus would send the disciples away when it was the people who wanted to make him king. It was the crowd that wanted to make him king. However, we're going to see the valuable lesson that this teaches us. And for the second time in Mark's account, Jesus withdraws privately to pray. He had a lot to pray about. And there was a lot of strength that he needed for the amount of ministry that he was pouring out into others and all the ministry that was coming. In fact, Jesus is about to do something very miraculous in the middle of the night. Powerful ministry is always the result of powerful prayer. Please remember that, church, always. Powerful ministry is always the result of powerful prayer. And I'll say this, even as, it, as I'm saying it aloud, powerful ministry may not even look powerful to the people who see it. Think about the seeds that were planted in our hearts in humble ways throughout our lives. Think about that little encouraging statement. Are we people who seek to plant those kind of seeds in others? That encouraging statement that may actually change so much about the way that they're living. We need to remember that powerful ministry is done in conversation over meals just as much as it is through healing and feeding 5,000. It's interesting that in the mountaintop moments, often what we seek for is a greater high, not a peak of solitude. We're looking for a greater high, a greater influence. When Jesus hears these people are having this mountaintop experience, dismisses them and finds a mountaintop of his own to pray. This isn't the first time we've taken note of the centrality of prayer in the ministry of our Savior. It won't be the last either, but it begs the question, and I put these up on a slide for you, and I'd like us to consider these questions, and don't be ashamed if you want to snap a picture. I wouldn't remember. I'm just being honest. My memory's not that great. In fact, though, really quick, another teaser. I'm going to show you a memory verse that we can all memorize today. Are you guys ready? If you're like, I can't memorize Bible verses. It's two words. Get yourself ready. Gird up your loins. If you don't know what that means, I'll talk to you later. You guys, here's what prayer, the centrality of prayer, ought to beget these questions of us. You guys, how essential is prayer for us? Essential. How essential is prayer? I was trying to think about a way to phrase this. I'm going to try and find it. You can go on the journey with me. Um, Essentially, this is kind of my thought around it. If you took prayer out of my life, Would it feel like I was missing something so significant that I wasn't right if I wasn't doing it? 
Or is prayer something that when you spend significant time in it, it's shocking to you, it's overwhelming to you because it was such a blessing because we don't do it often enough? Does that make sense? That's kind of my thoughts around this. Like if you were to take prayer out of my life, how much would it impact me? How much would it impact my time? How much would it impact my mindset? Everything that I am. And if you could tell somebody, I haven't prayed in weeks. I haven't even thought about it. That's a big problem. That would be a huge problem for Jesus. The way that he prayed. How often he prayed. The times that we see him seeking for it. And it begs the second question. Is prayer then an afterthought? Is prayer an afterthought for us? Is it something that if we get to it, we'll do? Or even worse, is prayer only for certain occasions? You're telling me you haven't speed prayed over that pizza before it cooled off? I speak from experience. You guys, is prayer just not a big deal? Is it central? Is it like part of the nucleus? Nucleus. Or, I had to, that was for you guys. Is it, is it central to who we are? You guys, you ready for your Bible verse that you get to memorize today? All right, here it is. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. You can put it up. Pray constantly. That's a whole verse. That's as easy as Jesus wept. You guys, that's a whole verse of the Bible. Okay, now can you do something for me? All right, I want you to close your eyes, all of you. Okay, don't, I'm not going to make you say anything to your neighbor. Close your eyes, and I want you to repeat it to me on three. I'm going to say one, two, three, and then you're going to repeat the verse to me. This whole verse you just memorized, one, two, three. You did it! (laughs) Biblical memorization. Now I'm going to tell all my pastor friends, I got my church to memorize a whole verse of the Bible in service. But do we understand the concept of pray constantly? I don't expect people to be driving to work with their eyes closed. Please don't. But the idea is that the line of communication between us and our Heavenly Father, between the Lord, is constantly open. That I am constantly speaking to Him as often as I can. You guys, Psalm 145, verses 17 through 19 reminds us of this. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and faithful in all His acts. The Lord is near all who call out to Him. All who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. This is the God we pray to. And in his word, we're told to pray constantly. It's not like you have a limited time. It's not like God's like, I'll work you in for like four. This is a communion day, but you have six minutes and that's all. God, keep open line. And Paul says, pray constantly. Just keep talking to God. Keep listening for him. And I encourage you, church, as often as you can, do not limit it to monologue. Do not make your time of prayer just monologue where you're just talking all the time. Give space to listen, to hear him speak to you. Let the Lord respond. Open his word and see what he leads you through in his scriptures. You guys, we... We keep the connection of fellowship with God always open. Pray constantly is such a powerful thing to consider. But I want to remind you this as well, that that doesn't negate the need for focused, intimate, personal time with the Lord in prayer. Pray constantly. Pray with your friends. Pray with your family. Spouses, pray together. Siblings, pray together. I love my kids. I never told them to do this. 
But my kids pray together at night. Walk by my, my sorry guys, I'm going to call you out. Walk by my boy's bedroom door and I'll hear them praying with each other. Young teenage boys praying with each other. You know, BJ was talking about the power of seeing a group of high schooler guys that were together at camp just seeking to bless the younger generation. If you have a brother, young men, if you have a brother, pray with them. Girls, if you have sisters, pray with them. Brothers and sisters, what am I going to say? Pray with each other. Siblings, pray together. Spend time with the Lord together. Seek his face always. Pray constantly. And late into the night, as Jesus is seeking the Father, as he's praying, the disciples are out on the lake, and this is where, this is where we find balance in life. Check this out. Verse 48 says this, He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Have courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. There's a lot here. There's a lot here. If you've been in the region of Galilee, there's a mount there called Mount Arbel. Now, I don't know if Mount Arbel is the mountain where Jesus was, it's possible. But I'll tell you this, if you're on Mount Arbel in the region of Galilee, you can see across the entire lake. And in this time period, they estimate the lake was only about four miles wide. Much of the fresh water of the region was being drawn from the Sea of Galilee at this time. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus in this time of prayer is aware of the struggle of the disciples. He becomes aware and he looks out and he sees them from his viewpoint laboring against the wind laboring to row you guys jesus allows himself to be interrupted from his solitude of prayer and is called into action again how many times have we seen jesus do this where jesus is seeking for rest and he gets called into action there's a time for quiet personal prayer but we must allow the needs of others to call us to action there's a balance here that doesn't mean we should always be doing something. It means that we need to find balance. And I'll say this, know yourself, know your personality, and know which way you lean. Know whether you're the type that's going to seek for solitude all the time or someone who's always busy doing too much. Seek for balance. For you married people, talk to your spouse about it. And thus Mike started countless fights in the church with one statement. You guys, it's a balanced situation, but I, I say that because we can learn from those closest to us on how balanced we actually are. Just as Jesus saw and took action when the crowds were in need of shepherding and food, he had sought rest for the disciples. Here he sees the need of his disciples and leaves the solitude of prayer. And to get to them, he just takes the most logical way forward for him. It's funny because you're like, that doesn't make sense to me. Think about this though. <laughs> if you're Lord of creation... There is no faster way to get to them than just walking on water. And that's exactly what he does. It's very practical for God in human flesh. It's funny because we like, we, we think about this. You're like, that's not right. It's like, listen, in terms of Jesus, this is the most simplistic solution. Just walk on the water. Unless you're dashed, this is, this is the only way, you know. Sorry, veiled Incredibles reference. I'm shocked at how many didn't get that. Okay, so you guys... 
wasn't in the notes. Shouldn't have gone with it. I'll make sure that I strike that from the record. Guys, I can only guess. This is the most comedic part of this message to me, and I'm not trying to make light of things. It's comedic to me that Jesus meant to pass them by. I don't know why. I, I, I read through this. I searched the text. I poured in, And there's lots of opinions about it. But I could not settle on a reason why, and all the gospel accounts say this, that he intended to pass them. I don't know. Like, it just, it's funny to me. I, I, and I know that they were afraid, and I'm not making light of that. I'm not making light of that. But there's something comedic about him wanting to just walk by him. You guys, here's the thing. Here's what we love about Jesus, right? Not making light of their straining. I'm not making fun of them. It's just interesting they meant to pass them by. And I have to think that this had something to do with it. He was okay with them struggling. Did you hear that? He was okay with them straining at the oars. And Jesus passes by making sure they're okay. But sees that they're doing fine. Now you're like, but they're not fine. Well, they freak out when they see him. But this is something in the Christian life that we often don't want to admit, that God will let us strain and struggle and sweat and toil and even experience terror. But he's there. He is there. And what does this story teach us? When you cry out, Jesus responds. He does not leave us there. He, did not, he, not, he not only didn't leave them in the middle of the lake, to continue to struggle without being there. But even when they were afraid, as he intended to go by, he responded to their call. He responded to their reaction. And look at the way he responds. This is the best part. Their cries of fear at the sight of him elicits this response. Three statements. Have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Put that on a note card and tape it to your mirror. Jesus' words to his disciples, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Three beautiful statements, you guys, and each statement relies upon each other for impact and power. When he says have courage, he's calling his disciples to a confidence and a bravery based on who is speaking. Not based on their own strength, based on whom is speaking. Jesus says you can have courage, why? It's based on the next statement. That's why I said they're connected to each other and they rely upon each other. They can have courage. Why? Because it is I. And for those of you who love a little deeper dive into language, Jesus didn't just say, it is I. Jesus said in the Greek, ego I me, which is I am. It's the name of God from Exodus 3. Jesus didn't just say, it's me, boys. He said, I am. He is associating with the Godhead. He is telling them not only that he is there, but who he is. This is huge when it comes to connecting why he sent them out there in the first place, by the way. If you're wondering why immediately he sent them away when the people wanted to make him king, put a pin in this spot. He just told them he's God very clearly and is standing on a lake in the midst of a storm. Jesus did what God alone could do and used God's name to identify himself. The third thing he says, do not be afraid or don't be afraid. Jesus identifies himself as God and therefore if God is with them, there is no need to fear. Each statement relies on the others for their importance and their impact. 
There's a clear connection to seeing the lovely heart of Jesus here on the water and their freedom from fear. I want to read you a passage from 1 John 4. It's going to be on the screen. This connects these statements that Christ made. 1 John 4, 16. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear, because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. The love of Christ, they're present with them. God in human flesh gives them courage and bravery and the reality to know this, that they don't have to be afraid. Because the love of God casts out fear. The disciples are seeing Jesus in a whole new light. This is revolutionary. This moment needed to happen. It wasn't just happenstance. This needed to take place. He comes to them in their need. Whether that seems possible or not, he comes all the same. He gives them courage because he's the image of the invisible God. And as he'll tell Philip later, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Ego, I me, I am. And because he is God, his perfect love casts out fear. There's freedom that we must have from Christ. We must have this freedom through the liberation of our souls from sin and death. We must be free from, fe- from fear. Causes response, destroys us. Our fear at the center of us, so many responses in our lives. Think about how much fear leads us to do foolish things. Freedom from fear is freedom from the source of so many sins in our life. Fear begets many sins. Church, I would seriously challenge you to consider how much sin fear has begotten in your life and to allow the love of the Lord to penetrate deeper into our hearts than we ever have to cast that fear out. Augustine beautifully states he came treading the waves and so he puts all the swelling tumults of life under his feet. Christians, why afraid? That's on a slide too, Tyler. Christian, why afraid? It's a question I want us to ask ourselves often. Why am I afraid right now? Why is there fear in me? Notice in verse 51, he gets into the boat with them and the wind ceases. For those of you who know the other gospel accounts, you know that something else happened here that Mark omits. He omits it for a reason. Peter walked on water out to Jesus, didn't he? There's a whole interaction here between Peter and Jesus. It's interesting that in Peter's account that he gave to Mark, it's not in this gospel account. He doesn't want our eyes on that. He wants our eyes on Jesus. He wants our eyes on what Jesus did. It's not that that situation isn't important. It's that for the reader of this gospel, Mark wants our eyes right here. Jesus gets in the boat and the wind stops. They were completely astounded. Verse 52 is important. Because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. When you think of hardened hearts in Scripture, it probably 
takes you back, and you might recall other parts of the Bible, I think of Pharaoh. When I think of a hardened heart, I think of Pharaoh. And I don't think that's the situation that we're seeing right here. If it is, it's not in the same way. Remember at the beginning when Jesus had sent the disciples away onto the boat and into this situation, I think this verse explains why. They didn't understand, and they had hardened hearts. Those are the two things that Mark says are happening here. They did not understand, and their hearts were hardened. Their hearts weren't hardened against Jesus. They loved the Lord. They misunderstood and had hearts that were hardened spiritually to see who he was and why he came. This is their struggle, their constant struggle with Jesus. Don't believe me? Look at Peter's response, who is kind of the leader of the crew. Look at Peter's response when Jesus says that he has to go to Jerusalem and die. What does Peter do? You could say it. He rebukes the Lord. Why? Because he still at that point doesn't understand. That hasn't happened yet. And he still at that point doesn't understand that Jesus had come to die. That Jesus had come to lay his life down for the sheep. They misunderstood. They had hearts that were hardened spiritually to see who he was and why he came. And I'll say it this way. They did not believe in what Jesus desired to do. They wanted a Messiah to do what they wanted to do. Even a disciple of Jesus can develop a hard heart if he fails to respond to the spiritual lessons that must be learned in the course of life and ministry. You guys... Those words from Wearsby are powerful because the disciples were not alone in misunderstanding Jesus. The crowds chase him down, as we'll read in a moment. According to John's account, the next day they're looking for another free meal. They want bread. Why? He just fed 5,000 people with five loaves. Now imagine what we can do if we give him a steak. <laughs> That's Mike's brain. That's Mike's carnal brain. You guys, according to John's account, they're looking for another meal. They didn't understand, nor were they seeking what they truly needed. And that's what Jesus came for. He came for rebirth. He came so that they might be born again. But they did not want a Messiah who did that. And the disciples saw the Messiah, but in many ways, they saw the Messiah that had been taught to them by the Pharisees and the Jewish culture of the day. A Messiah that would be a political and a military leader. A Messiah that would be basically what we want him to be, not who he is. Do we suffer from the same condition? Church, do we suffer from the same condition in that we're looking for Jesus to do all the things that we think he should do instead of looking at the scriptures and looking at the life he lived and looking to become conformed to that image? Am I trying to become more like Jesus or am I trying to get Jesus to become more like the leader I want him to be? Not need. The leader I want him to be. See, the Messiah of the scriptures, as Jesus would describe to the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, was explained to them in the Old Testament through the law and the prophets that the Messiah would come and he would suffer and he would die and on the third day he would rise again. That he came to heal hearts. That he came so that people might be born again. They wanted the physical. They wanted the temporary. The disciples themselves were even suffering from this the reason jesus got them across the water as quickly as possible is they would have taken part of that movement to make jesus their king they weren't ready 
oh, after he rose from the dead and filled with the Spirit, they were ready then to do what he called them to do. The church, we need to be sensitive and to look at the Scriptures and say, is Jesus Lord of my life? Am I surrendered to who he has called me to be? Not, is Jesus going to do whatever it is that I want him to do? Well, in Mark 6.53, as we finish out the chapter, the last couple of verses, it says, when they crossed over, they came to the shore at Gennesaret and anchored there. And as they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized him. It says, they hurried throughout that region and began to carry the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went into villages, towns of the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the end of his robe. And everyone who touched it was healed. Recalling back to the story of the woman who had that issue of blood who touched his robe and was healed, healed instantly. Twelve years she had suffered. And so people, obviously, I think this is a reference that people had heard about that. And that they realized, if I just touch the tip of his robe, and, and he was healing more people that way. How many of these people in this passage came out to hear what Jesus had to say? How many of these people were seeking salvation from their sin does it say in the text it says that they wanted jesus to heal they wanted jesus to fix their physical problems they wanted and according to john's account to be fed again physically all they were looking for is jesus to deal with their physical issues and i fear that in many ways we think the same way i know that i certainly struggle with it that I'll look for Jesus just to fix the physical problems of my life, and yet what he wants is my heart. Jesus wants your heart. He wants your life. And your life is more than just the physical. He wants every part of you. He wants to heal every part of you. And here's the thing. Sometimes we need to remember this. Sometimes he does not physically heal us, and that's part of his plan. Look at Paul. Look at how he allowed the apostles to go to their deaths for his namesake. Why? Because there's something more valuable. There's something more valuable than being comfortable, healthy, happy, and whole. That's counterculture in American culture. Some people regard God as a kind of universal bellhop, only to be summoned when something's needed. Because of the compassion of Jesus, people are seeking to get something from him. Healing, demonic deliverance, food. And he's healing them. He's caring for them. But they aren't being, they're not seeking to be filled by Jesus. And that's what we recognize as the church that we need most desperately. I need to be filled with Christ. So that I can represent him as his ambassador in this world. I have to be filled by him in order to do that. Jesus doesn't want to satisfy our temporary problems or longings. He wants to ensure our eternal presence with him. His heart is that we would be with him for all eternity. And if we view the words and actions of God in our lives through that lens, we can begin to understand how to have joy in the midst of all of the things that we face. We start to touch on understanding James chapter 1 verse 2, and he says, count it all joy when you experience problems and trials of various kinds. We can start to understand that. That in the good and the bad, we can have joy. Each new experience of testing demands of us more faith and courage. 
God is going to draw us into a deeper and a closer and a more mature walk with him continually. And he's calling every single one of us right now to further be tested so that our faith and our courage can grow. And I know for some of you, some of you are going through a lot right now. And it feels like you can't take much more, but he is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. He can get you through this. He can bring you through to the other side. And the other side may not be in this life. It might be in glory. But your eternity is in him. And so have no fear, church. Your hope is in Christ. and He already ran the race and finished it. As one of my favorite songs says, look to Jesus who already won. Look to Jesus. <laughs> okay. I wanted to close with this, and I don't get to say forever. Kids, come on up. My kids. <laughs> All the kids are like, okay. There's a prayer in John chapter 17. Many of you are familiar with the high priestly prayer. In John 17, Jesus prays, and he prays to the Father, and he prays for his disciples. He shifts the final portion of his prayer to all those who would believe in what the disciples taught. It's us. We're the continuation, the extension of the church. We're the continuation of what God began in the book of Acts when he poured out his spirit and the church began. And Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 over all those who would believe in the gospel. So as we close with this prayer... I want us to take a moment and recognize that this prayer, contextually correct, is prayed over all of us. This is Jesus' words and his prayer for us. All those who would believe in the gospel, the disciples would take and propagate to the whole world. So I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads and to close your eyes, and I'm going to read this over you, the words of Jesus. And I want us to receive this, both collectively as a church and personally. This is personal. And Jesus begins in verse 20 by saying this to identify that. He says, I pray not only for these, the disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you've given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Jesus, these words of you dwelling within us of your love being in us, of the Father's. Lord, just integral part in you being sent and you sacrificing yourself for us. God, in every way you have loved us, in every way you have called us, and yet 
you allow us to struggle sometimes out there on the water. You allow us to be tested so that our faith and our courage can grow. You allow us to go through difficulty, yet you're right there. And Lord, your compassion is so good, it's so great, that even as you are walking by, we cry out in fear and you come. Lord, we can look back in our lives. I know that I can look back through my life and see all the times you saved me. Where you stepped in. And Lord, I think that we just see a complete picture here. In many ways of how we can be, and Lord, I ask that you would show to us if we have become like the disciples and just misunderstanding you. And that Jesus, you taught us how to know what your will is by prioritizing prayer. The whole scene comes together so, so beautifully. You taught us in everything you did how to live righteously, how to find balance. And Jesus, we just thank you that you love us, that you have mercy on us, that you don't hold our failures against us, but you died for our sins, past, present, and future. Lord, that you are with us in the midst of the storm. So we thank you, Lord, and I pray that you would speak to our hearts individually now as we worship. As we take a few moments and pray, I just ask that individually you would speak. You would pour your joy into our hearts that you would speak comfort to us. Let's keep our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Let's just take a moment and individually listen for the Lord. We'll close in song, but let's just take a few moments and just sit quietly and let the Lord speak to our hearts.